0: All right. All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. Today, generally speaking, I want to speak about Christ, the wisdom of God. Paul calls him that. And the reason that that is important to our study is because the only way and the most definitive way, the most consummate way of knowing God is to know him in Jesus Christ. But not only to know him in Jesus Christ in general, but to know him. In the Christ event in particular. Christ and him having been crucified, raised, exalted, and enthroned. This is the vision that God puts before us through his gospel. And as we've learned, the key word to the book of Romans is a phrase which looks like this in the Greek text, which I usually read. The kaiosune, almost always... Commentators translate this, Dekasune as righteousness, the righteousness of God, and probably 50-50 between them and those who describe it as the justice of God. And linking this term with Romans 117 and Psalm 98 and many other passages through the Psalms, which we will eventually get to, and through Isaiah we find that this word actually means the deliverance of God, not the righteousness of God. So if you start off your commentary on Romans translating it as the righteousness of God, then you'll get the Greek word for justification wrong, which is dikaio related to this same word. And it's a noun. Now what's happened is the Latin translation translated dikayo or Dikaiosune as eustatia looks like this in the Latin, eustatia. And so, of course, easiest thing to do when it comes into the English, just drop down the I to a J and you got justi- justification or justice of God. That's an incorrect, as the Latin so often missed the true translation of the Greek, the word Dikaiosune theu, means the unconditional saving act of God in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the king and the right action of a king to take is the rescue of his people and the redemption of his domain. God's people, arguably, according to Paul, all humanity, God's domain, no argument, all creation. And so J. Lewis Martin also known as Lou Martin, I believe he passed away in 2015, but wrote, "I think one of the best commentaries I've ever read on Galatians." He had this statement. He made this statement in his book on the commentary on Galatians. That's J. Lewis Martin, M. A. R. T. Y. N. The human plight consists fundamentally of enslavement to suprahuman powers, and God's redemptive act is his deed of liberation. We found this word o oh, does not mean to justify, but to be rescued and liberated. And that term is even found in Romans chapter six and verse eight, in which Jesus Christ is rever- referred to as the one who died to sin and was made alive again and freed from sin. After becoming sin for us, he destroyed the power of the superhuman power of sin and was raised from the dead. Now, if one died for all, then all died, Paul said. Therefore, he says, concluding this, the love of Christ now masters me. What is the goal, the pastoral goal, my goal since the beginning of teaching John here in this building, which we call the Alamo, our, my last stand maybe, the Alamo, Here we began with one motivation, that you may come to have the love of Christ master you also. This can only be done by a participation in his life, by a participation in his fidelity, by a participation in his own continued livingness in the church. And this has been the fruit, in fact, of... The study and the teaching and this is most heartening to me when I hear people say they have more of a love now for Mankind when they have more of a compassion for their neighbor when they have more of an all-inclusive love and a non-discriminatory love then I know that that's the power of The Holy Spirit working through the Word of God God can only be known by God God can only be made known by God Not by his creation, but by God's own wisdom, which is Christ, and through God's own power, which is Christ. And that's why God, by his wisdom, decreed that the world, by its wisdom, could never know God. In fact, Paul states this explicitly in 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. If you're there, you can kind of see it there before you. God, by his wisdom, decreed... That the world, by its wisdom, by its intellectual contemplative abilities, would never come to know God. As Romans cites the Psalms, there is none who understands. No one can know God through what we call a natural theology or through a contemplation of nature, according to Paul. This is in total opposition to Romans 118 to 32, which again is not Paul's voice. It is the voice of a teacher who contradicts the gospel of the unconditional saving act of God in Christ. Therefore you should be aware, right at the outset of a stunning contrast, a radical contradiction between two gospels found in Romans 117 and 118. Paul's gospel is that the righteousness of God usually translated the deliverance of God, the saving act of God in Christ toward the human race. And in fact, all creation in Romans 5, 18 and 19 and Romans 8, 19 to 23, God's saving act in Christ is being apocalypto, revealed, disclosed, manifested as it is here today. Anyone who preaches the gospel, of the of the son of God the gospel of God about his son this message should be coming through about the saving act of God in Christ because God can't be known apart from that Christ event an event that began with the incarnation of Jesus Christ where God became flesh and which continued through his life which was a life of vicarious obedience to the Father and to the Father's intention to summarize everything in Christ, an obedience that led him by f- his own fidelity to the death of the cross. And by that obedience to the death of the cross, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name above all names, at the mention of which every knee will genuflect and every tongue, as we're going to see, shall say worshipfully. That Yahweh is Yeshua, the Lord is Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Now no one can say that the Lord is Jesus except by the Holy Spirit. So according to First Corinthians twelve three B, no one can say praisefully that the Lord Yahweh is Yeshua except by the Holy Spirit. So when the universal Acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus Christ or the identity of Jesus Christ with Yahweh is made it can only be made By the Holy Spirit's power. So we have a picture of a universal humanity Acknowledging God in the power of the Spirit which might even translate to some as a universal salvation But we won't be that premature in our assessment So God by his own wisdom decreed that the world by its wisdom would never come to know God The radical contradiction of God revealing his unconditional saving act of the human race in Christ Jesus is contradicted by the message. The cues of which the Romans would have understood begins in Romans 118, a turn or burn message by a teacher, a teacher who was radically centered, not in the scriptures. But we can demonstrate this, and I hope to do it a little bit this week, through a tract called the Wisdom of Solomon." which is included in the apocrypha but we don't include it in the canon of the scriptures because it was contemporaneous with Paul as written it was already available and Paul wrote when Paul wrote Romans and this wisdom of Solomon as it was wrongly called is a part of a genre of Jewish propaganda literature at the time which was highly antagonistic to gentiles highly and ruthlessly, in fact, and heartlessly geared against the Gentiles. I don't know if we can compare it to Thomas Aquinas's Contra Gentiles or not, but perhaps not. I don't know. I haven't read that yet. But this wisdom of Solomon is echoed in Romans 118 to 32. We don't really find scripture echoed there, but we do find this book a part of the Jewish propaganda literature. Now when I say Jewish propaganda literature, I do not mean that the Jews subscribe to this wholeheartedly. I don't mean that Judaism wrote this or backed this, but that a radical fringe group of Jews represented by this teacher did believe in this propagandist twist and this that God was somehow antagonistic to the Gentiles. When you read the scriptures, though, as Paul frames them in Romans 15, you see the Gentiles hoping in Messiah. You see the Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy. You see God having a plan all along to lock up the Jews and then lock up the Gentiles in the same prison that he might liberate them all through his mercy. That's what the scripture teaches. The scripture does not have a severe and antagonistic and even vicious retributive view of the pagans or the Gentiles or the heathen or the goyim as they're called. So we have the reflection of this in Romans one to 32 in that passage. The writer is basically saying that the pagans were responsible to come to know God by their own wisdom, by their contemplation of the universe And because they didn't come to know God or because they actually did come to know God, according to this. But they then decided, well, I'm not going to retain this knowledge of God in my mind. God gave them over to all kinds of cravings and idolatry and sexual immorality, all of which sounds like a turn or burn message. And that's exactly what it is. It is reflected in today's so-called evangelism, which is not evangelism. And it is not a Christian fellowship from which it emerges when people teach that you have to turn and repent of your sins or you're going to burn in hell. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is as antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ as anyone can get. And it is more vicious than anything else in this world that's going on right now. It is an attack on the unconditional grace of God. This teacher hits the ground running with his cameo sermon, and Paul says, Let me have a cameo of what his sermon sound like. And he starts off with this Orge Theu, the wrath of God is being revealed. Apokalupto, God's apocalypse is about his retributive wrath. In which the Gentiles who should have known God by their own wisdom and did come to know God by their own wisdom and then rejected him, contrary to what the Bible teaches, God handed them over to this to do these terrible things. And that they actually know the judgment of God on those who practice them, he says. They don't. They not only do them, but they applaud others that do them. Now you can find some of this activity easily in history and easily in our society today. But it is not because God gave them over to this. I'll show you this as we allow this word to unfold. So God can only be known by God. And God can only be known in Jesus Christ. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. No man has ever yet seen God, whether he contemplates the universe or not. No man has ever yet seen God. God only begotten, says John one eighteen, has exegeted him, has explained him. God only begotten, Jesus Christ. But most definitively, most totally, God is revealed in his act in Christ. As Jesus said in John 8.28 to the Pharisees, he said, When you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am. Ego, Amy, Ego, Amy. You will know that I am. That means when you have lifted me up, you will know that I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. Why? Because that reveals God in his total self-sacrificing, self-giving, unconditional unrestricted love, even for those who impaled him, even for those who crucified him. That's where God is seen, but he's also seen in the act of burial of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the elevation, the exaltation. As the father says to the son, come and sit by me until I make all of your enemies a footrest for your feet. The last enemy, death. So God, by his own wisdom, decreed, according to 1 Corinthians 121, that the world, by its wisdom, would never come to know God. So much for what I call nat theo, natural theology. God is only known in reality in Jesus and specifically in what is known as the Christ Event the Christ event should take in his incarnation his life of obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion his burial his resurrection exaltation and when Jesus said to the Pharisees You'll know when you have lifted me up that meaning lifted me up has two meanings one when you have actually hoisted me up on the cross by your insistence that I be crucified coupled with another event that's going to happen in the future, when you see that I am he, you will lift me up by exalting me. And that comes at the parousia, the coming of Jesus Christ in the future. So, Sune theu, and I finished a book last time I was in Florida, almost finished it, finished it when I came back, 936 pages and rereading it now. The one thing that Douglas Campbell discovered in his study of Romans after 20 years of studying Paul is that Sune Sunetheu means the deliverance of God. If the gospel is being preached, then the rescue mission of God to rescue human beings from suprahuman divine and suprahuman powers like sin, death, and the Adamic ontology, or what Galatians 1 4 calls this present evil age if the gospel is being proclaimed that liberative transformative message is being proclaimed and that's very important for us to realize there's a lot that passes for the preaching of the gospel today that has nothing whatsoever to do with the gospel of God which is all about his son so the key factor in that divine deliverance is the fidelity of Jesus Christ Years ago, I said, and I think I said it in this place, in John 1, 14, we beheld his glory, the glory that can only be that of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, or literally, it doesn't say but, it just says grace and truth, came by Jesus Christ. The law that came through Moses was fulfilled by the one jesus christ grace and truth means that he is the embodiment of covenant fidelity he is the embodiment of fidelity to the covenant covenant of god we could say that he was fulfilling the human end of that covenant by his own fidelity and that's why romans four sixteen, which we're going to get to soon not too soon but fairly soon Romans four sixteen, and I always wondered about this it says for this reason the promise that is the promise to Abraham which is to all his seed or to all nations so the promise made to Abraham which is for all the nations or all of his seed depends on and if you translate it faith it falls apart depends on faith. Imagine if the promise that God made to Abraham for all his progeny was dependent on each individual's faith then the promise would fail the word is ek pisteos used in Romans 4:16 which goes back to Romans 1:17 which speaks of the fidelity of Jesus Christ the righteous one who lives by resurrection in answer to his faithfulness unto death. So we could say in Romans four sixteen, for this reason, the promise that is to Abraham depends on fidelity, ekpistios, which is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now there you've got some security. There you've got some assurance. There you've got some stability. It, I don't know about you, but it translates into stability in my very soul and being. It gives me stability. To know that that promise of God made to Abraham that was for all his descendants or all the nations rests not on individuals faith, but on the faith of one man, Christ Jesus through the disobedience of one. The many were rendered sinners and placed under the superhuman power of sin through the obedience of one man. All were given justification. No. No. The deliverance which is life for in Adam all die but in Christ all will be made alive since he died for all then all died and if all died what is there left but to be raised together with him freed from sin freed from death freed from the Adamic ontology which we call the flesh so again Romans 416 and I apologize for telling you to Turn to 1 Corinthians 1, but I don't know where we're going from one moment to the next. For this reason, the promise of Abraham depends on fidelity. That's the fidelity or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So that the promise to all of Abraham's seed would be made sure not only to those who live within the framework of Torah, that is those who are Abraham's descendants according to the flesh in Romans 4.1, but also, to those who are of the faithfulness of Abraham, we're going to see that the faithfulness of Abraham was a pre participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ before he came, and how this is reflected in Hebrews chapter ten verses thirty seven when the coming one is revealed, and when in ten thirty eight he quotes Psalm, he quotes genesis fifteen six all the way through hebrews eleven we have person after person, woman after man, after man, after woman, living by a thing called faithfulness. And then we say, we hear the writer say, now turn away from all of these and look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faithfulness, the author and the perfecter of faith. And so again, the promise is dependent upon the faithfulness, the fidelity of Jesus Christ, in whom covenant fidelity is embodied. And personified. That's very good news. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth or the covenant fidelity to the law from the human side was in Jesus Christ. He is the one upon whom the promises of God rest. Not your personal faith. But Christ's personal fidelity. Which is a reflection of God's fidelity. For what does the scripture say? The dikaiosunetheu is being apocalypto revealed apocalyptically in this time and anyone's preaching the gospel. That's what's happening. The unconditional deliverance of God is being unveiled where the gospel is being preached. So you can discern and yes, you can judge as to whether the gospel is being preached. If this is being unveiled. Where it's the turn or burn message, the wrath of God is being revealed. God is portrayed as a God of retributive justice rather than unrestricted love. God is revealed as a God who not only has a retribution in his justice, but his justice is coercive and violent toward offenders. This is part of the tone and philosophy of the wisdom of Solomon. A non canonical book, a book of Jewish anti Gentile propaganda. For even as there is anti Semitic propaganda, there was also anti Gentile propaganda, not by Jews in general, but by a fringe group represented by this teacher, who in fact will say to you that Jesus is the Messiah. But that his only purpose was to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs for the Jews. And therefore, if anyone is going to be saved, they have to be circumcised and essentially become Jews to be saved. That's what Paul is nailing to the wall. That's what Paul is contradicting. Remember, he said, I am appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And in Romans one eighteen to 3.20, he's defending the gospel by showing the absurdity of this teacher's gospel. And then when he hits the ground in Romans 3.21 to 26, he starts to reveal a deliverance from God that is enacted apart from law observance and yet is attested by the Torah and the prophets. And in Romans 4, he shows how his gospel of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is testified in the Torah, especially in the story of Abraham, whom he does not present as a paradigm of faith alone in Christ alone for justification, but whom he presents as a precursor of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by which the promise is made sure to all the seed. Paul does something even more radical in Galatians chapter three in verse 16, when he says the seed is singular and it's Christ. Christ is the seed to him. The promise was made and therefore to all who are in him, the promise was made. So when he died, he died for all and all died. So in Christ and by his fidelity, the promise is made secure to, could we say everybody? That's the question. The discipline that has to be maintained in this study, the discipline at least that I have to maintain, is to remember that our objective in this study, and it's now in its 42nd increment, our objective in this study is simply, and I want you to know this if you're following this study, simply to answer the question as to whether Paul's epistles, that is all of them, as Second Peter says, Paul in all of his epistles speaks of these things and we're going to say what things Paul the question whether Paul's epistles amounts to an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ as an all saving Savior something that has not been addressed by Douglas Campbell and others in their scholarly attempts to I think rightly interpret Romans but we're asking the question And we have the advantage of being fresh off a study of revelation where we saw Jesus Christ as the lamb of God, having been slaughtered and now standing at the heart and the center of a new creation in which God proclaims from his throne. Look, I'm making everything new. Everything is made new simply by being made in Christ. As Genesis one, one says in the Septuagint translation in the beginning and the beginning there is HARK so we could say in Christ God created the heavens and the earth all of the creation in other words is to be summed up in Christ that's found in the first verse of the bible God's plan to and his intention to summarize everything in Christ that's his intent he has made an initiative according to that intent Jesus Christ has obeyed the Father's intent to make that happen through self giving on the cross, and therefore in one sense God has done this in Christ. It is done, says John nineteen thirty. It is done, says Revelation twenty one six. The only thing that has yet to be done is the Spirit's application to this individual by individual by individual until Every eye sees him, every tongue acknowledges him worshipfully, freely, not coercively. Every knee genuflects in adoration to him, and every tongue, as the the Greek says in Isaiah forty five twenty three, swears fidelity to him. So that's. Starting to answer the question. The answer to that question is starting to take shape. But I'm very hard on myself. I have to go into an intense, exhaustive wrestling match. Like Jacob wrestled with a man all night. I have to wrestle with the scriptures all the time in order to see that these things are so and demonstrably so in the scriptures. That's the, the discipline. Now. It's been shown that, Revela- that Romans one eighteen 18 to 32 resembles portions of wisdom of Solomon, especially if you have the Bible works or if you have Logos or if you have those programs or if you have a new revised standard or a revised standard Bible, you'll have wisdom of Solomon in it. I don't recommend that you view it as a biblical book. There's a lot of stuff in there that's deceptively like the Bible, but a lot that is not, especially Wisdom of Solomon eleven verses fifteen to twenty, Reve- Wisdom of Solomon twelve verses three to 4, chapter fourteen thirty one, and then again chapters fifteen nine to sixteen six. Wisdom of Solomon is particularly heartless in its tirade against the pagans. It presents a drastically and essentially and basically retributive God, which evangelical pastors and scholars love because they say that's what the kaiosune means, righteousness, justice, the justice of a God who has to have retribution on all violators. And they miss the point entirely because they fail to see that that term is rooted in Psalm 97 in the Septuagint in which Dekayasune and Soteria or salvation or deliverance are equated and that they are presented as the act of the sovereign king and throughout the Psalms, not only the act of the sovereign divine king, but the act of a divine sovereign king acting in his human representative the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, the father and the son, the father acting in his human divine King, Jesus Christ. That's what the cassune is. That kind of destroys the whole thing of you better tithe to be sure that you're in and you better do all these works to demonstrate that you're in. And if it's faith alone, that's even worse because you say, did I believe enough? Was my belief sincere? Was my belief really the faith that God recognized? I'll tell you what God recognizes, the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. You can be sure of that. There's assurance. There's confidence. I don't have to ask, was Jesus Christ's fidelity enough? If I were to go by my faith and think that my faith was that which the promise of God rested upon, I'd be insecure to the point of needing daily counseling And daily medication on top of the counseling because of the anxiety. And I've had it. I've had that anxiety, not only a fear of death, but a fear of eternal damnation as a Christian because I thought it rested upon my faith and the outworking of my faith until I discovered that it was Christ and His fidelity upon which the promise made to Abraham for all the nations rests for the righteousness of God. Let's call it the deliverance of God, which later he calls a gift, which later he calls a free gift, which later he calls an unconditional act for all humankind. The deliverance of God is being apocalyptically revealed in it, the preaching of the gospel. For as the scripture says, the righteous one, which is Christ, as we've seen in Acts 3.14, 7.52, 22.14, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 2.1. The, the Christ is the righteous one. My righteous one shall live, that's resurrection, by his fidelity as a result of his obedience to the extent of death. That gospel reveals the, apocalyptically, it discloses or unveils the deliverance of God from faith to faith is how we used to translate it. Faith is a very poor translation of ekpistias. It means from fidelity to fidelity. Faithfulness into faithfulness. The first faithfulness is God's faithfulness who calls us into fellowship with his son reflected in his son's faithful obedience. The ace piston in Romans 117 is the faithfulness of Christ continuing in the church. The church is marked by its participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ continues in the church. The church begins to receive the disclosure that she has been incorporated into Christ's death into Christ's burial, into Christ's resurrection, ascension, and present session. So Paul could say, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. In fact, it's Christ living in me. Christ died for me. Christ died as me. When Christ died, I died. When Christ rose, I rose with him. It is Christ living his resurrection life in me. I don't frustrate the grace of God, Paul said, again against the teachers who taught to the contrary, because if anyone is justified by the works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. I'm preaching now, in case you don't understand. Let me just quote something from Song from the Wisdom of Solomon eleven fifteen one verse from the Wisdom of Solomon. Listen to what it sounds like. In return for their foolish and wicked thoughts, which led them astray to worship irrational serpents and worthless animals, you God sent upon them a multitude of irrational creatures to punish them. Sounds just like Romans one because they did not retain the knowledge epinosis of God they. Gained the whole knowledge of God, says this writer, by their own wisdom, by their own ability to study the universe. Don't look at Nat Theo, look at Nat Geo. They have a show that tells you the origins of the universe, and of course they're authoritative about it. By the knowledge of the universe they come to the conclusion that there was a big bang or that there was something else that happened. But God's never involved in that. That's because God ordained that man by man's wisdom can never come to know God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Strangely in 1 Corinthians 10 Paul alludes to the Torah not to the wisdom of Solomon. A greater than Solomon is here. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, quoting the Torah in Numbers 21.6, the only time we see serpents being sent among a people is not the pagans, but Israel after the flesh who worshipped idols in 1 Corinthians 10.18. And so Paul says, it's funny, strangely, this divine action of judging wasn't even of the pagans, but of Israel after the flesh. Read it in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 18. But even there, the action of God sending those serpents was saving, salvific, a demonstration of his deliverance. Because God said to Moses, have some of your craftsmen build a replica of the very cobra that's biting these people. Have it be a brazen serpent so that it will reflect and glisten gloriously In the sun over this desert. Have Moses hold up. That replica. Of the serpent. And then cause the people. Who are afflicted by this. To turn and look. And as many as look. Are healed. Jesus said this in his own words. To Nicodemus who was supposedly. A master teacher of Israel. He said no man has ever. Ascended to heaven. Except the son of man who first descended and was lifted up even as Moses lifted up the serpent so that then he says, whoever believes, do you realize what he was doing when he said, whoever believes there that he was talking about a being caused to look being caused to look. And have you ever realized that being caused to look, You receive the life of the coming age at the present time and you stop perishing. And perishing simply means being locked into the Adamic ontology, being locked in to the paleo man, as Paul calls him, paleos anthropos. And as many as are perishing, the word of the cross is foolishness, but God chose the foolishness of preaching to save. So even that sending of irrational serpents among the people was with a salvific effect and it was ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. What does the scripture say in Isaiah 45:22? Look unto me all you ends of the earth. Look unto me to you to the furthest extent of the earth. The whole of the human population and be saved. <laughs> Because I am the Lord and there is no other and I swear as I live says God in Isaiah forty five twenty three. in the very next verse every knee will bow to me and every tongue will acknowledge me and Paul interpret that as with praise acknowledge me with praise and swear their faithfulness to me. Or attribute their faithfulness to me, they'll be marked by my own fidelity in Isaiah 45. Interestingly then, Romans 118 to 32 does not reflect anything in the Bible where the Gentiles are pictured as hoping in the mercy of God, as glorifying God for His mercy in an eschatological vision where they're praising God with the Jews. In Deuteronomy 32, 43, reflected in Romans 15, 8 to 12. So you see, in Paul's epistles, there's a greater one than Solomon. So look at 1 Corinthians 1, 17. Paul begins to say something rather shocking. Christ didn't send me to baptize. What? That's right. He didn't say, Paul, go out and baptize people. Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. You know why? While you're preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit is so active that those who hear are incorporated into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent eloquent wisdom. That means human intellect, human rhetoric, philosophical wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its importance. Preaching other than this gospel of Paul, according to the Decae Sunetheu, empties the cross of its significance. Empties the cross of Christ of its significance. And so. In Paul's epistles, there's a greater one than Solomon, even greater than the real Solomon, who isn't reflected in the wisdom of Solomon, otherwise sometimes even known as the book of wisdom. I'm speaking, of course, that greater than Solomon being Christ Jesus, who even said, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here, speaking of himself. And not only that, Christ Jesus has been made to be by God wisdom from God. That means wisdom for salvation from God in the form of deliverance. Read deliverance instead of righteousness in 1 Corinthians one 30 sanctification and redemption. In other words, as categories of and subtitles of under wisdom is deliverance, sanctification and redemption. Christ has been made those to us. This is God's doing. We are in Christ by God's intention. We are in Christ by God's initiative. Salvation is of the Lord. And we remain in Christ by God's divine activity. So very importantly, the cross of Christ is not only not robbed of its significance by the preaching of the gospel, it is rather filled with its significance that God intends, for it's indicative of the entire Christ event. Again, I can't emphasize this verse enough. When Jesus Christ made known to the Pharisees in John eight twenty eight, correlate that with First Corinthians one seventeen. When you lift up the Son of Man. And two meanings are intended for this lift up. It means to lift up to crucify, but it also means to lift up to exalt, to lift up or elevate in exaltation. The same people who lifted him up and had him hoisted up on a cross to be crucified are going to exalt him and elevate him in praise. For every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Even those who said, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And in John 1937, the prophecy already began fulfilled. The same men that nailed his hands to that wood and his feet to the cross saw him, Yahweh, whom they had pierced. And the centurion in control of that nailing of the son of God to the cross said truly this man is the son of God indicative that even those who voted for his crucifixion will see him in his eschatological appearance and they the same eyes that see him will have feet and knees that buckle to him willingly worshipfully and tongues that acknowledge him praise fully and say Yahweh is Yeshua. We now know him as lifted up on the cross. We now know him as now lifted up at the right hand of the father. And that's called salvation, not damnation. Imagine interpreting that God kicks the behind their knee and makes them hit the ground and, that's what we like to see in movies. We want to see that kind of vengeance happen. He kicks the back of their knees and they fall down. Then he says, you praise me or you're going to hell. And they say, we, we acknowledge you. And he said, well, you're going to hell anyways. That's what Augustine taught. He, he taught that people are going to be raised from the dead so they could be thrown into hell and tormented forever in a body that can be tormented forever. Well, that's wonderful. Fortunately, he changed up in his older age and smartened up. In Romans 14, 11, read that. Paul says this, for as it is written, not in the wisdom of Solomon, but in Isaiah 45, 23, which I just cited to you, as sure as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. And notice what Paul says, every tongue will give praise to, To God. He interprets that word ex homalageo there. That word, which means public acknowledgement, ex homalageo, he interprets as an expression of worshipful praise. That's from hearts that have been transformed, friends. That's from people transformed. That's from people liberated. That's from people rescued and delivered that's from people who it doesn't say look to me it says because to look to me Ephraim was heard down the corridors of history and Abraham heard him or Jeremiah heard him and recorded him and said he turned me and so I was turned and the leaders of Jerusalem rejoiced when Peter came back and told about how he preached the gospel in Cornelius's house and how God had quote Granted repentance to the Gentiles, given it to them. And so Paul says, as, as sure as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue give praise. Paul, in his consummate epistle, in which he expounds the gospel of God about his son, interprets ex homalageo here as meaning give praise to. And if you don't believe that, you can read it again in Romans 15, 9, where he speaks of the eschatological vision of Gentiles, those vicious pagans that were torn apart by the teacher in Romans 1, 18 to 32, in which the Wisdom of Solomon propagandist fringe group of really not Judaism at all. It wasn't Judaism at all. They fried these people. But how come Paul says... He sees an eschatological vision of the Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy. I see there the disclosure of the unconditional saving act of God in Christ, not a retributive God of justice. I thank God that God with a small G isn't seated in heaven, but there's a lamb there having been slaughtered in self-sacrificing love and having been raised. Please note this once again, this is in the context again, where he says, speaking of David, speaking for the Royal Messiah, the human representative of the divine king. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. Who's talking there? Christ through David, the king, the royal Messiah is speaking. Therefore, I will praise you, Father, among the Gentiles. Christ in you, Gentiles, the hope of glory, Paul says. This is the mystery that God will have mercy on the Gentiles and through them, mercy on the Jews. Astonishing. What a twist. And then he says, Christ speaking again, I will sing psalms in your name. Psalm 1849, 2 Samuel 2250. But if you're in Romans 14, look at 149 in the same context. And I will close with this. Paul, slightly earlier than saying, as sure as I live, every knee will bow to me and every tongue open. It's every mouth will be opened in praise. That's not a coerced and forced acknowledgement. That's the acknowledgement. All the promises made to Abraham and all his seed rested on the fidelity of that one right there. The one who died the one who rose again, the one who is seated in heavenly places. I was crucified with him. I was buried with him. Colossians 2.12. I was raised with him. Colossians 3.1. Romans 6.4. I was elevated with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2.5 and 6. For when I was dead in sins, I was made alive together with Christ. For by grace, I was saved through the fidelity of Jesus Christ. My life then is marked now by a faith that I don't have to worry has the degree that God would approve of because it's a participation in the faithfulness of Messiah. I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and gave him self for me Paul's testimony but it's mine too and i think you'll find it's yours as well but before that what did he say in romans 14:9 christ both died and came to life christ and him crucified means that christ both died and came to life john falls at his feet on the isle of patmos he says What are you afraid of, John? Look at me. I was dead. I was dead. I'm the one that died. But look at me now. I'm alive with a livingness that you've never even imagined before. An incorruptible, immortal, glorious, and joyous kind of living that you've never even imagined. Look at me now. And, oh, I hold the keys of death and of Hades. I own those places. They're evacuated. I own them. So what are you afraid of? This revelation I'm giving you is going to climax in this. Look, I'm making everything new. Look, I'm making everything new. And all things are new if all things are in Christ. And therefore, everything ends up in Christ. Just like Genesis 1-1 hinted at. In Christ, God made everything. In Christ, God will summarize everything. This is God's intent, according to Ephesians 1.9. This is what he's going to do, according to one ten. This is his unstoppable determination, according to one eleven of Ephesians. And this is God's action from beginning to end. This is the gospel. Christ died and came to life. Why? In order that he would exercise control over the dead and the living. John, I got the keys here, dead and living. I got the keys of death and of Hades. So included in every knee bowing and every tongue praising as it acknowledges Yahweh to be Yeshua, Jesus are the dead or whom we can call the formerly dead. Once a singer named Prince got a tattoo and a, he said that the artist formerly known as Prince, will you be the formerly dead? Jesus is the only one who is bodily inhabiting this age to come. You are inhabiting it in him, but not yet bodily inhabiting the age to come. That will happen, however. But you have an inaugural sense of that expectation. You have an inaugural sense of that joy, that hope. It's welling up in you. It's an expectation. It changes your life. It transforms you from the inside out. So included in every knee bowing, in every every tongue praising, are the dead or the formerly dead. I don't plan to get a tattoo in this life, but I might in the next life. I might have one that says, the formerly dead. The grateful formerly dead. The grateful alive and well. For Christ is Lord over the dead and the living. On top of this, Isaiah 45, 23. Read this yourself in the immediate context. Let me read it again. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Be turned to me be turned to me and be saved all you ends of the earth I am God and there is no other I swear an oath then he says righteousness dikaiosunai but what does that mean righteousness dikaiosunai if not deliverance deliverance he says will surely proceed from my own mouth to tell us my words will not be frustrated to me every knee will bend and every tongue will swear fidelity to me all the human race will one day be known as having a fidelity to me because it is the shared fidelity with Jesus Christ. The swearing of fidelity to Yahweh indicates that the mark of the redeemed is faithfulness, which as we are incrementally discovering is not our own faithfulness, but a gracious participation in the fidelity of the son of God otherwise known as the man Christ Jesus. So father, now that we have explored these things in your word, we pray that you will truly reveal not only to us, but to many in our generation who desperately require this disclosure that you will reveal yourself in the Christ event through the proclamation of the gospel. This is the need of the 21st century. This is the intent of the series called better call Paul. This is the intent of the epistles of Paul. And we pray father that a vision of an all saving savior will be like the ark that was clearly viewed by the people in Joshua's day who crossed over the split Jordan into the promised land. May many of us, if not all of us here, have this vision so clearly that it motivates us to go into that experience of the out-resurrection from the dead that precedes our bodily resurrection so that we might manifest in our mortal bodies the continued livingness of Jesus Christ. And thank you for the assurance that we live Not by our faith, we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. And we pray this and praise you in his name as we close.